Exclusive Books is delighted to present another homebrew podcast series, a celebration of South African writers and their books. Now 25 years old, Exclusive Books Homebrew 2022 is not the same old story, but a mirror and a window into South Africa, where we are, where we've been, and where we can go. A remarkable selection of history, fiction, memoirs, current affairs, and children's books on our most pressing and relevant topics, from identity to feminism, corruption to corporates, self-love and identity, and everything in between. Incisiveness, humor, self-reflection, and hope abound. Check out the full selection in all exclusive bookstores and online. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by advocacy journalist and poet, Lerato Sibanda. Bruce Whitfield's most recent book, Genius, How to Take Smart Ideas Global, is a contextual and commentative chronicling of some of South Africa's most successful business ventures and standout magnates. It offers much-desired background to our wine, fishing, and citrus industries, to name a few, with interesting nuggets such as how two men, while having lunch in Rosendville, come up with the idea of the Portuguese chicken restaurant Nando's, which is to date South Africa's biggest restaurant export. This book also enlightens us on trivia, such as why the creepy crawly is sort of South African, and why Mzanzi's loved sparkling juice appetizer is known as apple ties in the UK. Ingenious Bruce Whitfield, also an award-winning broadcaster of The Money Show on 702 and Cape Talk, offers ingenious information on what it will take to globalize a local business while straddling a tenacious and unstable political economy. Welcome to Homebrew, Bruce. Please read us an extract from your book. You want an extract from my book? Okay. Um, I'm going to pick, I think, the introduction. The chapter's called Setting the Scene, and I like to do all my chapters with a little quote from different people, meaningful quote. And I've chosen a quote from uh, the late Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, who said, we are a scintillating success waiting to happen. And that's one of the great frustrations about South Africa, of course, because we're always almost there. Almost. Almost there. Never quite there. Almost. Here's an extract. There was a time when South Africa was a critical cog in the complex machinery of global commerce. By virtue of its location at the southern tip of Africa, its geography gifted the country with a role in a system of trade that shaped the modern world. The Cape of Good Hope was a strategic, life-saving stop-off point between Europe and Asia that not only enabled global trade, but also played a critical role in leapfrogging global commerce and human development. It's hard to imagine now that South Africa ever played that role. For about 200 years, it was the halfway point to almost everywhere, thanks to its location on the most valuable trade route in the world. Europe's insatiable quest for spices drove commerce along its shores for hundreds of years. There was a time when spices were amongst the most valuable commodities on earth. Nutmeg, now a mere dusty sprinkle atop a rice pudding, was once worth more than its equivalent weight in gold. 
The same goes for cinnamon, one of the first spices traded in the ancient world when Indonesian rafts transported it to East Africa from Sri Lanka, from where local traders carried it north to the Roman market. It was first the Portuguese, then the Dutch who used the Cape of Good Hope as a stopping off point and monopolized spice distribution for centuries. As technology improved and the world became faster and more impatient, shipping moved from sail power to steam. Journey time shortened and advancements in technology, such as onboard refrigeration, meant what had once been an obligatory stop at the southern tip of Africa was no longer required. When the Suez Canal opened for business in 1869, South Africa lost its global relevance. The world's interest may have ended there had it not been for the discovery of minerals. Within less than two decades, South Africa was once again the center of global attention with the diamond rush in the Northern Cape in 1870, the discovery of the world's richest single gold deposit on the Witwatersrand in 1886. The country became a magnet for a wide range of fortune hunters, opportunists, rogues, and warmongers. Those discoveries led to the creation of the most advanced economy in Africa. While they generated extraordinary wealth, they also laid the groundwork for conflict, bloodshed, and a system of violent political repression. And I think I'm going to stop there, if you don't mind, Arato. As much as I enjoy reading these words that I wrote in the last <laughs> couple of months, um, and each time I read them, I, I'm sort of traumatized by the introduction is always the hardest. And I hope I've got the introduction in a way that sets up a book of incredible optimism and hope about the future for South Africa, which really has been at the center of everything and has been at the periphery of everything at various times in its history. And I kind of feel for the last decade and a bit, we have by choice and as by political choice, pushed ourselves to um, the far reaches of the globe once again. And what we're seeing with the current government and with opposition parties now pushing back against state capture and everything else is this desperate attempt to claw back our place in the world. And this book, Genius, How to Take Smart Ideas Global, is some of the stories of some of the most extraordinary people I have the privilege of knowing and have had the privilege of watching grow and develop over a quarter of a century. And I tell some of their stories, hopefully adequately, um, about just the, the, the sheer courage and tenacity and grit, one, to open a business and succeed in South Africa, two, to go and say, hold on a second, but Nando's chicken, this stuff's delicious. I think people in Bangladesh will love it. I think people in Singapore will love it. I think people in England will love it. Americans will love it. And having the courage to take that idea global and so many others is nothing short of, to my mind, of remarkable. I was glad to discover that South Africa is the only country that provides the world with fresh cherries in the months of <laughs> September and October. And also that we are the second biggest exporter of citrus after Spain. Now, my question was, are we benefiting from this cherry window? Is our economy benefiting and are we really reaping the fruit of our labor? Well, cherries are so small as a commodity. It's more of a quirk than it is a great export opportunity. Far bigger is citrus. Far bigger is um, other agricultural commodities. We do massive maize exports. We have surpluses in most years. And this year in particular, with the mad war in Ukraine, that bigoted blighter and in Russia invading Ukraine and, and destroying one of the world's greatest sources of wheat and maize production for a period of time anyway, um, it gives South Africa an opportunity to to, to fill that gap. Nobody else can see this, but I'm holding up a particular fruit 
to my camera, Lerati. An avocado? It's an avocado. And there is a South African company that is the biggest producer of avocados in the world. And it doesn't do it just from South Africa. It's a company called Westphalia. It's based in Limpopo. And Westphalia produces avocados in 15 different geographies from Israel to Colombia to um, different parts of the world, California, um, where it, it rents land, plants avocado trees, which take six or seven years to start bearing fruit, um, and it exports them. So they are the only avocado producer in the world, as far as I can tell. They produce avocados 365 days a year to more than 40 markets all around the world. And a man called Alk Brandt, who is South African, actually runs the business of Westphalia out of the United Kingdom. But they learned their trade in South Africa and have taken their skills and their um, human capital and have developed that into a global platform to be the world's biggest producer of avocados. It's those sorts of stories that blow my mind constantly in an environment where we second guess ourselves as South Africans far too much. We used to be very proud. We used to box way above our weight. We used to go anywhere and people go, Nelson Mandela. They didn't do so much for Tabo Mbeki. They didn't do it for Halemo Motante because they couldn't pronounce his name and he was there not long enough. Um, And then Jacob Zuma came along and then they treated us like the basket case we became. And there is a great desire, I think, around the world for us to succeed. And everybody else wants us to succeed. And we seem to be our own biggest problem and our own biggest obstacle. Um, I must have this for lunch, by the way. It's beginning to get overripe. Um, But we are our own biggest obstacle because we've lost our sense of self-confidence. And this book, Genius, How to Take Smart Ideas Global, is the story of grit and determination in a small cohort of people and remarkable individuals who show us what is possible and show us what we should all be striving for, and that is to have a little bit more pride in ourselves, in what we produce in the country, and what we can create. Um, and you know, we've got fabulous exports, whether it be some prime business talent in Elon Musk and Rulof Werther, who are the kings of Silicon Valley at the moment, whether it be um, Trevor Noah, who is South Africa's biggest comedic export, even Chester Missing is doing lots of work internationally, um, and, and has got himself a global agent, um, as has Luis Ogola. Um, and, he, and he's performed at the Hammersmith Apollo, for goodness sake, and to rapturous applause. And, of course, we've got Grammy Award winners, um, all sorts of other people who ply their trade globally. And I just don't think that we're nearly proud enough of what it is that we do and produce and create. But perhaps, Bruce, it's because many of us were not informed or enlightened to know our background Lerato, and don't history. make excuses for yourself. Do not make excuses for yourself and do not make excuses okay. for anybody else. <laughs> the information is freely available. I've simply chosen to pull it together well, and Well, certainly in this book, Genius, you exactly. have packaged it together for us quite nicely, Bruce. Exactly. So stop, stop complaining. Um, but, it's, but isn't that one, there's the opportunity. Because we, we say we don't know, and either it's willful ignorance or we simply don't know where to look, or we don't join the dots. Um, and it's been a great privilege to join the dots because I have been, had a front row seat for more than 20 years to the evolving story of South African business. And I tell these stories each and every single day. Thank you for listening on the radio. Um, and by doing that, I've been able to build insights that I don't know how many people have been able to have that much insight into so many different things so consistently over such a long period. 
As you've just said, you have been um, talking about business, politics and society for quite a while now and also pinpointing the intersections between them. In writing this book, is there any new information or perspective that you landed on that took you by surprise and you were like, "Mm, I didn't know that? Uh, so much of it. And that's the wonderful thing about writing a book. I mean, you write a book to learn new things. If all I wanted to do was build a corporate talk, I could decide I want to talk about five different things, go and study those five different things, string them together, and nobody would be the wiser that I knew nothing either side of that. The joy of writing a book and the joy of the, what did I say joy, the torture of writing a book is identifying the best possible material and isolating that material. I mean, I just love the, 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 the stories like the Westphalia story. I love the story of Prattly Putty and then realizing that, of course, what you need in a country, and it, it seems crazy to have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway because it is so blindingly obvious that successful countries make more stuff than unsuccessful countries. Huh? Yes, it's that simple. Um, if you look at the United States is built off the back of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurialism and agriculture and exports, um, and then it became really expensive to make stuff in America, so they exported their manufacture to China. 1990 to 2020, China grows at extraordinary levels. And China today is unrecognizable from the country of of 30 or 40 years ago because they started making stuff, the world's factory. India, with more than a billion people, um, has got massive disparities of wealth, just like South Africa. But what India's got more than South Africa has got is an enormous amount of hope because what India has done so successfully is invested effectively in education. They inherited a British education system. It's evolved and changed over time. They didn't break it like Zimbabwe broke its education system and and broke the hope of of, of its country. But India has invested heavily in mathematics and science and technology training. And now it's a hotbed of technology. And the world's drugs industry depends on the commodities, the medical commodities that come out of India. And they've taken smart ideas global themselves. In South Africa, we find it hard to make anything out of anything. We've got very restrictive labor policies. We've got very restrictive controls on business. For anybody to succeed in South Africa, you've got to be blooming determined and have a grittiness and an edginess and a determination that sets you apart, I argue very strongly, from most people in the world um, because you've got so many headwinds and so many obstacles to your success. And I think it makes um, business leaders tough. I was watching a video of the late Maya Khan the other day. Now, that name is probably going to mean nothing to you, but he was a, a guy who grew up in Benoni, a bit rough around the edges, but with the brain the size of a supercomputer in his head when computers were very big. And um, he became the chairman of SAB, South African Breweries. And together with a guy called Graham Mackay, the chief executive and the financial director, Malcolm Wyman, they looked at the world in the 1980s and they thought to themselves, apartheid is not going to last forever. Sanctions, therefore, won't last forever. Political prisoners will have to be released. There's going to have to be some kind of negotiated settlement for South Africa. And if there isn't that, then it's going to be a terrible civil war and we won't want to be based in South Africa anyway. So we need to start planning to go global. But unlike 
you know, I mean, if you look at brands like Carlsberg and Heineken and so many others, these are brands that the manufacturers have taken global. SAB didn't take its brands global. What it took global was 10 years of business refinement during the 1980s that when South Africa opened up in the early 1990s and the Berlin Wall fell and communism died as it was long overdue to do, um, we had this explosion of opportunity in Eastern Europe, in China, in Russia, in places that were inaccessible to anybody, particularly South Africans in those days. And SAB took this huge intellectual capital and expanded into the world with great success, becoming South Africa's most valuable company, South Africa's most global company, and South Africa's most successful company, became the second biggest brewing company in the world before it was bought by AB InBev, who've messed it up. Um, And I think I can say that unequivocally. Um, But SAB, and and Mike Khan was devastated. Uh, In 2016, there's this video, um, and he died the other day. That's why I went Googling him and searching. And he was just like, I would never have sold this business. We built up this great global business. And they did. And they were superheroes at the time. But we move on. But there's just so much great grit and intellectual capital in South Africa that we underestimate consistently. And it's at our own cost. And it's such a pity, Lerato. And I'm hoping that the book Genius just helps people change their thinking a little bit about the place in which they live. I find it interesting how you highlight so much how we have a lot of resources within our land and how most of the commodities that we possess, we don't beneficiate from them. But rather as raw materials, we sell them to bigger companies overseas who then process everything and sell back to us. I found that very, very interesting. It's so frustrating, isn't it? I mean, why is is that so? Because we've been spoiled. What I've learned, and I think the biggest lesson I've learned in this book, is that scarcity is what drives innovation. So if you look at Dutch agriculture, for example, the Netherlands is a tiny, skinny little country in a, a boggy, damp part of Europe. It's not a natural place with sunshine and great rainfall and everything. It gets too much rain um, and it's not sunny enough. Yet it is the second biggest vegetable exporter in the world after the United States. There's one company, one company that produces more tomatoes from uh, an area the size of about 11 or 12 football pitches than the whole of ZZ2, which is this massive company in Limpopo that produces half of South Africa's tomatoes every year. But this one little company on 11 football pitches, about 11, 12 hectares of space, produce as many tomatoes as ZZ2 does each and every single year. And they are part of this huge engineering miracle of hothouses and tents and tunnels and agricultural innovation, for example. Um, And I forget the original question, but I'm on a roll. So I hope you'll forgive me, Lerato. But you've got this wonderful innovation and they don't have raw materials. They're not an agricultural country. We in South Africa are an agricultural country, but we're used to producing food on a large scale. So we plant our mealies in rows that are a meter apart and each plant is 20 centimeters apart. And because we have space and we want to get the biggest mealy cobs we can. And that's the way we've done it in South Africa for the last 150 years. And and that's commercial agriculture. And it works and it's fine. But because there's a huge scarcity in the place like the Netherlands, they have to think differently. So they have to innovate. From a South African perspective, when there's scarcity, we become incredibly innovative. When there's a scarcity of opportunity, when there's a scarcity of skilled labor, when there's a scarcity of educated workforce, when there's a scarcity of capital, 
you start getting incredibly creative in South Africa and building great businesses. My favorite story of all is the Nando's founders, Fernando Duarte and Robbie Brosen, create Nando's. They've got about three stores. And somebody who is working in their brining factory where the, the chicken carcasses go to be dipped in all the delicious flavors that make Nando's Nando's, um, that young guy says, you know, you'd be talking about wanting to take this business into international markets. I want to introduce you to my parents' family friends, the Enthovens. Um, they've got lots of money and they are very much like you. And I think you've got the same values and I think you'd work well together. And so Robbie Brosen said, well, tell Dick Enthoven to come and see us. Dick Enthoven goes to one of the first Nando stores, sits down, eats the chicken. I've got an audio interview with Dick Enthoven in which he says, oh, it was just the most delicious thing I'd ever tasted. I sucked the bones clean. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, absolutely. And what Nando's had plenty of was ideas and brand ideas and values and peri-peri all of that stuff. So there are plenty of how to do the job, but what they had a scarcity of was capital, was money. What Dick Enthoven had none of was the great idea and the energy to do it. But what he had was lots of money. So they married the two. And usually when people do a deal, it's quite a conflicted thing. You have got the idea, but I've got the money. So we end up fighting over who's going to have what percentage of the business. And I'm not going to tell you what percentages they settled on. But people in high finance who I've spoken to are gobsmacked by the number that Dick Enthoven demanded and Robbie Brosen accepted when they negotiated. And it's that sense of scarcity. Dick Enthoven said, right now, you know, one day money will be a commodity to you. You'll have lots of it because this will work. One day that'll happen. But right now you need money and I need a great idea. Let's work together. And that sort of marrying of minds and seeing opportunity and applying capital to opportunity in a capital-scarce environment. So I, I believe firmly that scarcity creates huge hunger and opportunity. It goes through our history. I mean, there are just so many examples. And it's one of the reasons, I suppose, to answer your question finally, why we don't add value to our own commodities is because we've got so many of them. So many of them. We've got platinum lying an inch under the ground. We've got the biggest platinum reserves in the world. And we've got huge platinum group metals reserves. So we don't need to do anything with it, really. We dig it out the ground, we smelt it down, and we send it off to people who then put it into motor car engines and who put it into batteries and into all sorts of other things because we haven't bothered to create the industries around it. We're trying to with motor vehicles at the moment, and about 40% of all of the components inside the new Ford Ranger, which is made in, in, in Roslyn and then is shipped down to Trebecha and it's exported uh, from Nucha, is this wonderful Ford Ranger bucky, about 40%. So some of the vehicle panels, some of the plastic bits, some of the rubber mats, none of the really complicated technological or mechanical stuff. But we are beginning to grow support industries in South Africa to support our motor manufacturing sector. It's slow and it's painful and it's tied up in bureaucracy, but we haven't had to because we've had it easy for quite a long time. And because we've had it easy, we've got lazy and we've got a bit slack and a handful of people are showing us how we should be doing it. And hopefully we learn their lessons. Let me end with this simple, perhaps silly question. Why is the creepy crawly sort of South African, but not really? 
<laughs> because it was invented by a guy in South Africa who was not South African. In fact, he wasn't African at all. He was a Belgian and he lived in the Congo. Um, and there was the revolution in the Congo and he moved into South Africa as an engineer, very talented guy. I forget his name off the top of my head now. Um, and um, he, his son, he, he or his son had a pool cleaning business and they were doing really well as pool cleaners because if you've ever had a swimming pool, you know, the, the the two best days of having a swimming pool is the day that you first swim in this brand new swimming pool. And the, the even better day is the day somebody brings a truckload of sand and fills up that hole in your garden and you plant vegetables or something useful in it because it's so much work. And, and so this guy goes, hold on a second, there's got to be an easier way. And he starts playing around with bits of rubber and tubing and tape. And he creates a really clunky automatic pool cleaning system and he then manages to get a manufacturer to make a slightly better version and it's gone through many iterations over the last 40 years or so but he creates this thing called the creepy crawly and as far as i can tell there have been more swimming pool cleaning pool innovations and inventions from south africa than any other place in the world because hey a small rich part of the community has got swimming pools and they want to keep them clean they want to keep them sparkly and there are lots of people who think they can do it better than anyone else because you know engineers are quite arrogant in that sort of way. They think they can do everything better. So they've innovated and created. And why it's not South African anymore is because all of these pool cleaning companies have been bought by big American multinationals. And so Australians think Creepy Crawly is Australian. It's not. It's, it's, it's not. Secret. It's not. It was invented in South Africa <laughs> by a guy from Belgium who lived in the Congo, who came to South Africa, and then they've sold, the family sold it on, and it's now a global product. But yeah, things like that, great innovations, Prattly Putty, oh my goodness gracious me, headquartered in Krugersdorp. It's got 800 products that it sells around the world. Prattly Putty is an epoxy glue company that starts in 1946 in a garage in Yeovil with a guy who's an engineer who's creating solutions for the gold mining industry, which is booming in those days. Joburg is full of holes in the ground and people are taking gold out of the ground and processing it and it's brilliant. The underground is wet and it's humid and it's damp and there's lots of corrosion on all of the electronics. And so he was creating the sort of like glues and seals for all of the electronic things. And suddenly he went, hold on a second, but I'm quite good at these chemicals and mixing things together and bonding things together. Um, and a, a bit of Prattly Putty made it to the moon before Neil Armstrong did. It was used to, to glue two bits of the Ranger spacecraft together. An American company wanted to buy Prattly Putty and they said, no, thank you very much. And I think now it's either the third or the fourth generation of the same family, the Prattly family, run the business to this day. And they've got something like 400 global patents out of Krugersdorp on the West Rand, where they do their own research, they do their own manufacturing, and they make a lot of glue. Um, yeah, just, I, I, there's so many stories let out. I wish we had more time. It's really encouraging to us as South Africans to say that as South Africans, we do possess cultural agency and business agency as well. People shout about Israel, but there's an Israeli academic called Yuval Noah Hariri who wrote a fantastic book called Sapiens. And um, once you've read Genius and then my other book, The Upside of Down, read Sapiens. It's the third best book ever, no, fourth, one of the best books ever written. Um, and <laughs> Sapiens, uh, in, in, in the book, he says, having power means knowing what to ignore. 
And we are, there's so much clutter and so much noise. And unfortunately, we've got incredibly noisy politicians who generate far too much hot air and get far too much newspaper coverage, far too much internet coverage, far too much radio coverage, uh, far too much social media coverage for the stupid, stupid, ignorant, clueless value that is added by many politicians, some are good. Uh, and, and really, I like to focus on people who do things, not people who just talk, 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 which is why I need to go now and do something because we've talked now <laughs> and we must go. But Lerato, thank you for your interest. Thank you for your time. And I really hope that people take inspiration from genius and they really get to the nub of it, which is we are gritty, we are creative, we are hardworking, we are remarkable, and we need to start taking ourselves a little bit more seriously in the global context because I think we're pretty great. Indeed we are, and so is this book. Thank you so much, Bruce, for your time, and thank you for our listeners for tuning in. This exclusive Books Homebrew podcast was spread far and wide with the help of Vodapay. Vodapay is a super app that is available on all mobile networks. On the app, anyone from any network can send and receive money, pay bills and shop the amazing deals, all in one place. It really is one app for anything and everything. If you like it, Vodapay it. <laughs>